Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Stand before a giant sequoia tree in Sequoia or Kings Canyon National Parks or nearby Yosemite National Park, and you're overwhelmed by their size and assume that they're impervious to anything that might be thrown at them. But as we learned from wildfires in 2020 and 2021 in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, that's not the case. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. The Castle Fire in 2020 and then the KNP Complex and Windy Fires in 2021 that burned through the two parks destroyed thousands of giant sequoia trees. Estimates put the losses at more than 14,000 mature trees on the high end, or roughly 13 to 19% of the world's giant sequoias. At the Sequoia Parks Conservancy, just days after the KMP complex fires started in September of 2021, plans were made to begin raising funds to help the National Park Service restore and recover areas in the two parks that were burned. Today, we're discussing that ongoing recovery work with Savannah Boyano, the Executive Director of the Sequoia Parks Conservancy. We'll be back in a minute with Savannah. Gear up for 2024 with Interior Federal Credit Union. Synchronize all your accounts in one place with their tool, Money Management. Money Management allows you to create budgets to fit your lifestyle, set up goals for the future, monitor your account and loan balances with one login, track debt, and more. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org and sign up for digital banking to get started. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Welcome to the Traveler, Savannah. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for your interest. No, it's an incredible story that's going on, both uh, cataclysmic in, in what the wildfires did to the sequoia forest and, and now the recovery effort that's ongoing. Um, tell me a little bit about the conservancy before we get into the, the meat of the story. Sure. Sequoia Parks Conservancy is the nonprofit partner to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, and uh, we will celebrate 84 years of service to these two national parks um, this year. So we're very proud of our long legacy of service um, to these parks. We also have an additional partner of U.S. Army Corps of Engineer Lake Kauia. That's quite a, a span of time, 84 years. Um, what was the Conservancy created to do, established to do? Sure. Our um, first role was really one of education and providing um, books and maps, um, you know, for wayfinding and enrichment, you know, educational enrichment for uh, early park visitors um, in 1940. And then it has expanded over time, uh, continuing, you know, providing education through, you know, books and maps. And we've added other educational products um, that, that do tell these parks stories uh, and broaden the stories that the parks tell through these products. We also provide education through a field institute. Um, so you can hire a guide here in the park and extend um, your experience and understanding and appreciation of these parks. It, it's not a ranger program. The rangers offer you know, the free educational programs to the public and we kind of extend that and deepen that experience. Uh, that's our niche that we hold down. And then in 2015, we added a philanthropy priority, and we are the park's fundraising philanthropy partner there. Now, I'm wondering, I mean, you, you work on behalf of both the parks, Sequoia and Kings Canyon, and in some respects, they're totally different parks. I mean, everybody relates to Sequoia National Park because of the giant sequoia trees, and Kings Canyon has some sequoia groves as well, but it's, it seems to be the high country um, that really differentiates Kings Canyon from Sequoia. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, that's really interesting that you pointed that out. I spoke with um, a reporter mm, a couple of weeks ago, and he said 
to me, he had noted, you know, the same thing that, you know, they are two different uh, national parks legislatively. They're managed as one since World War II. Um, but he said, oh, no, I really prefer Kings Canyon National Park. So we know that people really connect to the two parks in for different reasons. Um, and I think in the Kings Canyon, it is the high country that draws the people. It's Cedar Grove, which, you know, John Muir uh, compared to Yosemite Valley, but without all the people there, it's a stunning, stunning canyon there. Um, and in addition, when you're in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks or around, we're surrounded by the Sequoia National Forest and Sequoia National Monument. And sure. so we get a, a wide audience of people who come through and really are connecting not only to the national parks, the stories of these two parks, which in some ways are distinct, um, but we're also um, meeting folks who are connected to these parks because of the the national forests and the opportunities offered through the national forest. You know, and one thing that really points to diversity of those two parks is while a lot of people focus on the trees or the high country, there's a subterranean aspect of the parks, the, the caves that are there. There are dozens and dozens of caves between those two parks, if not more. And you know, that's an ongoing story of exploration and discovery. Yeah, it is really a shocking park. You know, there's, like you said, there are all of these caves, almost 200 uh, subterranean caves. And that means we have an underground wilderness and it is managed as wilderness, um, which is just a unique experience to be able to have um, in the United States to know that we've got this vast network of underground wilderness. Uh, and, and above us, of course, we have these beautiful dark skies. So um, the opportunities to connect to your own story culturally um, and with your recreational interests um, or you know scientific um, interests is just, I think there is something for everyone in these two national parks. It's really, really incredible. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I, I think that goes to many, if not most, of the units in the national park system, that there seems to be one element that attracts people to them. But if they pause and, and look around and, and ask some questions, um, they'll find some incredible stories that will add to their adventure in the parks. Correct. Yeah. And I, I would say, Kurt, if I could extend that just a little bit, one of the ways that the stories of the national parks are extended is when we get, you know, new audiences into the parks and new kinds of employees in the parks who dig deeper and look for their own story and their own connections and then become attached to those stories and begin to amplify them and bring them forward. And I think that is um, a wonderful you know, part of the national park experience is bringing forward conversations and topics and connections um, that are new. And so we we always like to see our new visitors come in and ask questions that you know maybe someone hasn't asked before, or amplify discussions, or um, seek information and education on a topic that's maybe not as easily accessible. Um, but then becomes, you know, a major part of these national parks. No, absolutely. Um, learning through others is a, a vital aspect of both the National Park Service and uh, I think anybody who considers themselves a parks advocate to, to share their opportunities or their experiences with others. Now, of course, um, the main reason we're here today, uh, Savannah, is, you know, to talk about the, the wildfires that struck uh, Sequoia and Kings Canyon in 2020 with the Castle Fire and then uh, the KNP complex and the Windy Fire in 2021. I don't think anybody could have envisioned the devastation, if you want to call it that, that was um, felt by those two parks from those fires. Yeah, devastation is definitely a word. And I, you know, it's it's devastating on on different kinds of levels. Of course, you know it's it's devastating on the kind of the life history and the ecology of giant sequoias and the mixed conifer forests that surround them. It's devastating culturally. Um, many of you know the the middle elevation is uh, got rich 
um, cultural sites for many different user groups in there, particularly our local tribal members, but other groups as well who have contributed to building these national parks and are part of the park story. Um, it's devastating. I think we saw this really in the tribute gifts um, emotionally to people who find, you know, solace and and awe and all kinds of, you know, things that the human, the breadth of the human experience expressed um, in these giant sequoia trees and in these two parks. So it, it's very, very real for people. And we saw that in, again, in the tribute gifts that, your tribute expressions that came, you know, with people's donations and um, it's an unfolding conversation. Yeah, and I wonder. I wonder if devastation is the the correct word. And I I say that because um, I was in Yellowstone back in '88 when the wildfires burned through that park, and um, I was working for the Associated Press, so I was on the ground covering the fires. And I, I I spent a couple different stints in the park, and the the first one, I thought, oh my gosh, this is devastating. And then the second time, I had a greater appreciation for wildfire and, and natural events and whatnot and saw the rebirth that was occurring rapidly. I mean, before the fires were out, there was rebirth in some of the burn sections. And I'm wondering, is, is devastation the, the correct word? I mean, certainly things have changed since um, 88 and the Yellowstone fires. I mean, I don't think climate change was part of our vernacular back then. And, and today, you know, we attribute climate change when we're talking about the types of fires that burned in, in California, the KNP complex and, and the Castle Fire, is devastation the right word, or is this is this natural? Um, I would say you know it is devastating in some ways because it shatters our paradigm of what we thought we knew and it shatters our assumptions about the natural world and we have to rebuild from there. You know, it really, it was a leveling experience, I think for a lot of people, um, whether you were in the park or whether you were really far away, I think it felt devastating, but you know, Kurt, you said something that's really important with distance comes perspective and you can see different things when you get that distance from a, a really big um, and kind of life-changing event like a fire like this. And I think that's what we see now is we've seen, you know, kind of trying to rebuild these places and trying to build resilience into these places. I think the devastation, you know, we've kind of got some distance from that. And now we're looking at uh, just all of the very interesting things that we are learning as part of that rebuilding. And learning can be exciting. You know, there is an exciting part of that. And um, I think that's part of what we're seeing right now that, you know, there's still the, you know, the worry and, you know, those elements in there that can be negative elements. Um, they're still there and we don't want to ignore them. And, there is an ele huge elements of hope and interesting and look what we're learning that we would not have learned otherwise, or we might've learned a lot more slowly. It was amazing how much of the giant sequoia forest that they burned. I mean, I, I think a lot of us tend to look at the giant sequoia trees and think, boy, they're so huge. They, they can repel anything. They've got bark a, a foot or so thick to, you know, ward off flames from fires and they actually need fires to, um, release their pine cones and open up the serotonous cones so they can reseed the forest. This was like nothing anybody could have imagined, right? Oh, yeah. It was just, it was huge. You know, 16 giant sequoia groves, anywhere from, you know, uh, probably tw about 2,300 um, monarch giant sequoia groves. Monarchs are, or monarch giant sequoias are the large diameter um, giant sequoias were lost during this. And, you know, again, you think they're forever trees and boy, forever can go up in flames pretty quickly. Um, and, and that's what we saw during that time is just fast. Yeah. And I think between those three fires, I mean, they, they claimed roughly anywhere from 13 to 19% of the mature giant sequoias on earth. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the mortality rate, the history of the mortality rate, if you, you know, have been watching the the news releases over time is just, I mean, that change between, you know, less than 1% to, you know, almost 19% uh, in, you know, in these last, you know, four or five years is just really incredible. Um, that's a big shift. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're talking about, you know, how climate change has fueled the fires, um, not, not to be funny, but contributed to the intensity of the fires. At Yosemite National Park, they, they've done a lot of um, um, understory clearing um, around some of their sequoia groves. And, you know, they attribute that to lesser burn intensity in, in recent years. Was that a situation at Sequoia and Kings Canyon where they hadn't gotten around to, to clearing that, uh, you know, tangle of undergrowth? Or, you know, was this really just such an intense fire that nothing was going to stop it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when we think of, you know, there's roughly 75 groves of giant sequoias in the Sierra Nevada range, and uh, roughly 30% um, are, you know, fall within Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park. So it's a you know, large number of groves are actually in these two national parks. Uh, we tend to think of them as, you know, the giant forest and the ones that we'll see along the highway, but many of the groves are actually in remote locations and they don't lend themselves to easy, you know, to, to easy management. So doing prescribed fires in places like the giant forest or, you know, general grant, grant tree uh, area, um, the big stump area, um, Lost Grove, those are all right on the highway and they're very easy and safe to manage them. And they have been managed really well in that way. But as soon as you get out into the backcountry, into these really steep terrain, those wild groves can be very difficult to manage. They, um, you know, just the, di the, you know, difficulty of accessing them. Um, and then when you get there, they're on steep terrain. Um, some of them haven't, you know, had any prescribed fire in 150 years or limited uh, management in that many time in, in that, you know, span. So uh, it, it spans the range from quite a bit of management in the front country to very little management in the back country. And, um, and you could see how the, when the fire got to those different kinds of groves um, with different kinds of management strategies and access, you could see how, you know, the fire responded to the management or, you know, less management. Right, right. And then turning to, to climate change, um, you know, here in the, in the Southwest where I live, you know, we've been under drought for more than 20 years. And I know there was um, drought in California until uh, the winter of 22, 23, which was uh, quite the winter for California. But that, that was an anomaly in recent time. And climate change has, has led to, um, I believe, lesser snowpack and a snowpack that melts off earlier in the spring than usually um, used to do. And then with that snowpack gone, the drying starts. And, and that all contributed to these, the intensity of these fires, no? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, so extensive drought, like you've said, and, um, you know, when you have events like a long drought, then, you know, it's not only a factor of having less water, then there are effects of having less water, right? So you've got, you know, tree dieback or the trees are more vulnerable to things like um, beetle infestation, which can kill them, right? Different kinds of fungus, again, that can kill them. And so you've got these kind of after effects of the drought itself that are making the forest more vulnerable um, to that kind of death and, you know, dead, what we call a lot of dead standing trees, right? right? So that's, it's not just a factor of drought. It's, you know, that, that all of the other things that come along with drought. Yeah. Yeah. All the contributing factors. And because of the, the fire burns so, so hot and so intense, um, it really baked the soil, and it, as I understand it, um, incinerated any sequoia seeds that were on the ground, as well as some in the 
tree crowns themselves? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, typically if you would have, you know, if we look at the fire regime pattern in a giant sequoia grove, you know, fires creep along in a giant sequoia grove, you know, of course, the only natural introduction of fire into a into any ecosystem is lightning, right? And when lightning strikes in a giant sequoia grove and starts a fire, it might, you know, creep around on the forest floor and it's a lower intensity fire. Um, for those of you who are listening in the audience and want some perspective on this, you know, you think of you have a candle with a yellow flame and then you have a, you know, your stovetop, right? Um, oven that or you know stovetop kitchen and you might have a really high blue flame and you might take you know as a kid you know you would take your finger and run it through the candle you know that yellow flame be like wow that look at me I'm not burning <laughs> right but you're not going to do the same thing when you're looking at a gas stove right with that blue flame you're not going to stick your finger in there right so fires can have different um, temperatures themselves and so um, when a, in a giant sequoia grove, um, naturally fires will go through and they'll creep along and the heat generated from the natural debris in the area is relatively low. In this case, what happened was the heat, the temperature of the flames based on the debris on the ground was extremely high, unusually high right? It would be equivalent to sticking your finger in that blue flame um, in the stove. And that's something that, you know, giant sequoia groves, giant sequoias are not, um, you know, it's just not the norm for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it does, it tends to, it'll, you know, burn up everything in its wake, um, leaving it, the, the groves themselves, not prepared for natural regeneration. Right, right. Now, you know, the numbers that we're seeing out there, um, 88,000 total acres of habitat burned in the parks and 16 groves were impacted to various degrees, you know, more than 4,000 acres of sequoia groves, thousands of trees lost, um, literally thousands, um, maybe as many as 10,600 trees lost to the Castle Fire in 2020. You know, we're talking mature trees and another 2,300 to 3,600 lost to the KMP complex and the Windy Fire. I mean, we're always talking about mature trees. What about immature trees? Uh, any, do we have any sense on, on how many immature trees were lost or how many survived? Mm, you know, I don't actually have that number handy with me. Um, it is important to consider age uh, classes within a forest, a healthy forest. You want to see those different age classes exist, and I just don't have the number um, here prepared with me, but it it really is important um, to have the different age classes, and so that you know the production of giant sequoia seeds or any pine cones really is kind of an ongoing process. As as these trees mature, you're right. also having you know the cones mature and the seeds mature as an ongoing, not you know all maturing at the same time and all dropping seeds, viable seeds and cones at the same time. Right, right, right. Um... You know, and then you, you touched on one of the other threats, um, kind of unrelated to fire, but the, the cedar bark beetles yeah. that um, are infesting, you know, some of the sequoias. You know, in, in the, the Rocky Mountain interior, you know, you've got pine bark beetles and spruce bark beetles and whatnot. And I, I understand that they've been able to survive better than in past years because it hasn't gotten cold enough in the winter times. Is that the reason why there have been cedar bark beetle problems in the sequoias? Hasn't been cold enough to kill them yeah, all. Yeah, this it's really an on, ongoing story. So I'm not sure that I would be able to give you something definitive, but certainly it's a place where we're starting, right? Um, that you know the the winters are shorter here, the winters are warmer here. It's called the Sierra Nevada for a reason. Nevada meaning snow, so the snowy range, um, and that snowy range, um, you know, the snow window is getting shorter, and so that lengthens um, the growing and reproductive seeds uh, seasons for um, even the native species of bark beetle, the cedar bark beetle. And so even right now, as we speak, you know, scientists are trying to get a handle on what they thought they knew about this native beetle. 
compared to what now is being revealed as a result of climate change and, you know, less snow, shorter winters, uh, more precipitation. Um, and so I know that we will begin to see more of that story coming forward as scientists, um, you know, understand or begin to understand um, these bark beetles. Yeah, yeah, that's one one uh, post-fire um, story that will continue for years, I'm sure, is is the science that uh, these fires prompted um, in, to not just their causes and their spread, but to all these other aspects, such as the, the, the bark beetles and whether they're more prolific, have more generations in one season than they used to have. What about wildlife habitat? How, how, is, how have the fires impacted wildlife habitat in these two parks? Yeah. So, you know, in 88,000 acres, there's a whole lot of habitat in there and uh, definitely uh, severely impacted the habitat in, you know, in some key areas. And we do have an endangered species, the, uh, the Pacific fisher, and um, they are on, on the ground right now, really trying to inventory um, the fishers themselves to learn, you know, what the population is like and where the population is uh, and their reactions to the KMP fire versus areas that were in the KMP fire, but not as heavily impacted that would still be, you know, in Pacific fisher habitat. Um, we've got, you know, uh, I think there's uh, frogs and reptiles that are also in there. So we've got some partners that we've been working in, uh, working with just to go in and, and in inventory or re-inventory those, um, the population of those animals, and then starting to take an inventory of the habitat loss and impacts for those, for those critters. Yeah, yeah. We're talking today with uh, Savannah Boyano from uh, the Sequoia Parks Conservancy. Uh, about the wildfires that struck uh, Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks in 2020 and 2021. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. National Parks Traveler has launched the National Parks RVing Guide, the definitive guide for RVers seeking information on campgrounds in the National Park System. The guide is now available free through the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. If you're a traveler who wants to explore the National Park System, you'll want this app. The guide is packed with details for campgrounds in more than 70 national parks across the country, searchable by park, state, or region. You'll also find feeds of the traveler's content, including our latest stories and podcasts. Download the National Parks RVing Guide and start planning your next trip today. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Savannah, um, I, I haven't had a chance to get out to the park since the fire. Um, I know it's it's early February, and so nobody's probably getting out to the parks. But last fall, before the snows came, what was the landscape like in the areas that burned? It was not what I expected, Kurt. When I first returned after the fire, um, the fire started in Sequoia National Park, um, in three locations in Sequoia National Park. And one area was quickly extinguished, and then the fire, you know, that started at Crystal Cave merged with the fire that started at, in the Mineral King area, they merged to become the KMP complex. And I really thought of them as Sequoia National Park fires. Um, so when I left the Sequoia Park entrance station on those first days, uh, when we actually had access, I expected to see just wholesale devastation in Sequoia National Park. And it is terrible in some areas. And in other areas, you really can't tell as much that there was a wildfire. However, when I left Sequoia National Park, taking the General's Highway North towards Kings Canyon National Park, that's where I saw the, the greatest devastation. Um, the, it was just a really, really intense wildfire over there um, that, you know, there's 
it's just toothpicks, honestly, in, in many areas. Um, and I was not prepared. I, I think I'm still speechless, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. Just how um, hot and intense the fire was over there. I had not predicted that at all. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you go into these lovely areas with like, Okay, this is really, it's still really wonderful in that area. But, you know, the patches are like, whoa, okay, there was an intense fire here. Yeah, I'm wondering, because like I said, I was in Yellowstone in 88, and those fires started in late June. Um, and it wasn't until early September when a snowstorm came through that they were finally put out. But towards the, in August, you could find burned areas where there were wildflowers, um, the next spring, you would see the the, um, the lodgepole pine seedlings coming coming back up. N- nothing like that at uh, Sequoia and Kings Canyon. Oh yeah, there's always lovely things that come up after a wildfire. <laughs> there's yeah, in the areas that were intensely burned, no, it just is still very quiet in those areas ecologically. Um, so we don't see a whole lot of wildfires. But the areas that were burned to a lesser intensity. So beautiful, so pretty with the wildflowers. And it, you know, gives you an experience where you really can begin to see the sunlight reaching the forest floor um, in a different way than it had before. And it just great, great stuff. You can go anywhere in this kind of lesser burned area um, and just see some beautiful stuff. And right. it kind of, it, it leads you down a path, right? And that's the, that's the funny thing about fires, you know, they, the, you know, the fire comes through and it, you know, it, it burns um, to whatever degree it's going to burn. And myself, I find it almost as, you know, like a, it, it creates a new path for me, a new path of appreciation and understanding and curiosity, Right. So I find myself even, you know, I walked out to um, Sunset Rock, which is um, in the giant forest area, and it was impacted by um, the KMP complex. And I found myself just driven by my own curiosity. And then I would see one wildflower and then just see this carpet of wildflowers. And then, you know, my brain was like, wait, what's going on here? And, and it, you know, you get that lovely, you know, just like, I want to understand and fire is a, it is a real teacher, you know, when you kind of remove the emotional aspect there, um, it is a real teacher and it is a real guide to a place and it guides you to the, you know, kind of the, the dark underbelly sometimes, but it also guides you to these just wonderful highlights of things that you might not have noticed before, or you might not have had a reason to stop and appreciate them. And certainly this wildfire um, did that in a lot of areas, just really causes you to step back and go, wow, I can see things that I did not see before. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing that the the Park Service is uh, busy at work uh, to interpret some of those areas for visitors um, in the coming, coming months. Um, we're post-fire. We're into the recovery period, the restoration period. Does the, the Park Service have the budget to to come in after an event of this size and be able to get in there on the ground and, and work on restoration, work on recovery? Uh, that's a great question. So um, immediately following uh, the KMP complex wildfire, um, Congress actually did allocate a special appropriation recovery allocation um, to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Um, much of that money was dedicated towards you know, restoring infrastructure that was lost or heavily impacted during the fire. Roads are a great example. Those are always affected by big fires, you know, sewage, electricity, phone lines, um, buildings, you know, there was a lot to restore, repair, or rebuild. Um, And thanks to Congress for doing that. They saw the need and responded immediately. Um, They also allocated a little bit of money towards that ecological um, restoration and, but not as much towards the infrastructure, you know, they really lean into the tangible things there. And that's where partners like Sequoia Parks Conservancy come in to the mix where, you know, we can provide flexible fund rate or flexible funds for these restoration areas that are not covered by special appropriations, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, we chose the fire start on September 9th. By September 12th, we had a plan approved by the National Park Service to raise a million dollars to fill in those gaps where, you know, special appropriations or the park budget wouldn't be able to absorb the need um, or respond to the need for um, any kind of future restoration um, efforts. And just to give your listeners kind of some context, you know, it's it's more than when you're talking about restoring an area, it's more than just putting a road and calling it good and, and now you're off and running. The effects of these fires will be felt for years and years to come, and we will continue to learn about the effects of the fire and what's needed to restore an area and or build extra resilience into an area so that when another climate-related event um, comes to pass, we're better prepared for something like that. And that's where our funding comes in, is that the funding is what's called no-year funding, so the park can use it as new discoveries or needs for repairs um, or study, you know, scientific study kind of emerge, then Sequoia Parks Conservancy is prepared with funding to help learn and help restore, repair those areas. Yeah. Yeah. And of course your campaign is called the big give. Um, you've had a million dollar goal. Have, Have you reached that yet? We're really close. We're three quarters of the way. So actually I think we're more than three quarters of the way. I'm sorry. Yeah. So we're close, you know, our goal, we're going to finish this fund this year. Um, but the parks have already been applying. They, we didn't wait to say, okay, we've, we, you know, we have to wait until we've got the million dollar goal. We didn't wait. We were there with the money, you know, ready to apply that um, right away. Sure. Is a million enough? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think it, it's not enough. Um but it's it's what we decided at the time, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It, but we do have, you know, we are constantly fundraising, um, for the national parks, and we do have other, uh, funding pots available so that you know, as the KMP funding, um, gets exhausted, we've got a giant sequoia conservation fund, um, we've got kind of a a cultural resources fund. Um, we, we've got all different little pots of money that the parks can apply to use that funding, you know, to kind of rebuild. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you use that word apply. I, I was wondering about it. Is it just a blank check that goes to the park service or do you have to discuss what they want to use the money for before you send no. them the money? Yeah. It, you know, I, I say apply, but really what I mean is that Sequoia Parks Conservancy offers grants to the National Park Service and they apply, they, you know, build up a project, um, they build up a budget, they build up, um, you know, they tell us what they hope to achieve, you know, what outcomes and outputs um, that they hope to achieve um, through this funding. And then we work closely, you know, with our board of directors um, to vet all of the asks. And then we determine what meets um, kind of our criteria the best and matches closely with our mission and then matches closely with our purpose. And then we will grant them the funds. Can you say what some of the money has been spent for already? Yeah, sure. Um, we've done, uh, we funded some Pacific, again, a Pacific fisher, which is an endangered species in these parks. Um, we've funded Pacific fisher um, research. Um, we have funded some uh, tribal um, consultations, um, like I said before, um, the KMP complex affected the mil- middle elevation of Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, and the middle elevations has a very um, rich cultural significance for all of our tribal members and tribal communities, and so they have been an integral um, part of restoring these areas and doing surveys, and we want to make sure that they're involved at every step of the way, and so we funded some of that work. Um, we have funded replanting of giant sequoia um, groves in some areas. We've funded um, cone and seed collection um, so that they can germinate giant sequoias again to replant in those areas. So a lot has been going on with this funding. Yeah, public yeah. education, we funded public education, rebuilding um, 
um, you know, providing those wayside exhibits. Um, we we did have a a great film where they flew over the Redwood Canyon Grove. Um, so we applied some funding there. And and our whole purpose is really we want to put the funding where um, it, you know, again is going to go to the greatest good for giant sequoia conservation for the future. And we hope that it will also be in areas where visitors um, their experience is enriched um, because of this particular um, restoration um, effort. So we want visitors to very much, um, you know, benefit from our funding and the visitor experience. Right, right. You mentioned um, reseeding, replanting, I believe. Um, that's been a little controversial in some areas. No, isn't there a lawsuit that was filed by some groups that didn't think it was appropriate to reforest um, in wilderness areas? Yeah. Yeah. There is an ongoing lawsuit and the, um, you know, you can find out more from the National Park Service on that one, but it, you know, I, I understand, you know, there is a lot of emotion that goes along with this and there's a lot of emotion that goes along with, you know, what the American public thinks should go on in national parks or not go on in national parks and, and what all of the words in the organic act mean. Right. And how we interpret them. And, you know, uh, you know, one of my favorite things to say is it is a conversation. National parks are where the great American conversation about our values lay and they're not always comfortable conversations. And we're lucky that we can have them. And, in that conversation, you know, Sequoia Parks Conservancy is a proud partner of the National Park Service, and we do <clears throat> rely, you know, on on their science, their interpretation of the science, and then that's what we use in order to um, grant the money to the National Park Service. But you know, I understand, um, and it's okay. And at some point, we'll all agree on on you know how to move forward in those areas. I'm not sure we'll ever all agree on anything, but you know, you mentioned you mentioned the Organic Act and the Organic Act, and um, you know, the Park Service long has said, you know, we're going to let nature take take its course, and we're not going to intervene. And with the advent of climate change, you've had the argument put forth that because climate change is driven by mankind that this is no longer nature taking its course. And so it's appropriate when necessary to step in, whether it's replanting giant sequoias in wilderness of the two parks or whether it's bringing wolves back to Isle Royal National Park because it's too warm for the ice bridges to form to bring in, to allow the wolves from the mainland Canada to, to come to the island. Um, it is an interesting debate, and I and I'm not sure it'll ever end. And I don't sure we'll not sure we'll come to a consensus on, you know, is is the Park Service playing God in in wilderness areas, or are they being responsible stewards of these lands and the wildlife within them? Yeah, it it is. It's extremely challenging. I you know when you look at the life history of giant sequoias over the millennium and the mortality rate. And when 19% of the world's mature giant sequoias are killed in 14 months, right? That that gives you pause. And it, it, it at least for me, uh, it makes me really look at, you know, what what's relevant? <laughs> these days, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when the Organic Act was written, you know, the world was a very different place. And why our motivation for writing the Organic Act and our motivation for these national parks uh, and our motivation for every word that went in there was seeded from a different place. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't from the place that we find ourselves in today. And, and yet it is a document, it's a foundational document. And so how do we move forward in this era of urgency, you know, and I, and they were, um, you know, how do we do that? And I don't, you know, none of us have the answer necessarily. And I think that's what we're working out as a public, but that sense of urgency is completely different 
We are not, you know, trying to continue nation building like we were, you know, proving ourselves on the world stage, you know, as we were. This is now, you know, this is a climate emergency. And how how can we use the Organic Act and the laws that have since come from the Organic Act and how can we use um, you know, the, the most relevant science to move the needle forward uh, and caretake these places and steward these places. It's really a challenge. Um, yeah. I, and I don't have the answer to these challenge, but I, I guess I would argue that we need to, you know, my challenge would be, you know, moving forward and saying, okay, well, that was true then. What do these words mean to us now when in the light of climate change and how would we rewrite the organic act knowing what we know now? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm sure it's one that's going to continue to be asked and debated. Um, you know, and wildfires are not the only impact brought by climate change, the intensity of the wildfires. There are other um, impacts that climate change brings, whether it's drought or um, warmer temperatures that allow cedar bark beetles or other um, species to um, survive and to the detriment of other species. We had a story on The Traveler a few weeks ago about the John Muir home and how he had brought a sequoia sapling down um, from the high country to plant in his yard and how this tree, you know, just never gained the height of a mature giant sequoia because it was in the wrong place. And so, you know, I'm wondering with climate change impacts growing, um, what other threats the giant sequoia forest might encounter? It's a really good question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we know the answer to these questions. I, I do think it's, you know, kind of, it is an interesting question. And that is one that, you know, the best scientific minds, I think, are trying to, to tease out right now. Um, you know, I'm not the expert in the in in the field of giant sequoias, and and sure. you know, I'm not a scientist. Um, and then the other hand is that you know, I would say that because you know we have put we've we've kind of put um, in suspended animation some of these charismatic megaflora megafauna. Um, stories, we've put them on a shelf and said, here, we're going to park you here for a while because we think you're okay, right? Without really, you know, continuing that pressing investigation into their life history and story and management. Um, and so I think it's, you know, this fire has been a call to action of like, hey, there is no, um, there is nothing that can remain on the shelf where, you know, you're okay, um, you know, this got taken off the shelf. Like we immediately have to learn a lot that we should have been learning, you know, um, all along. We just thought, well, they're, you know, they're doing fine. We had a narrative, a certain narrative around them. And that narrative, um, is shockingly, um, less relevant than it was before, certainly. Right. right? Um, and so, you know, this partly why I can't answer your question because there's just so much to be learned right now. It's not that we weren't curious. It was just that there were other pressing things at the time. And now this is our new pressing thing, right? And so we're doing a lot of catch-up, I think. Right, right. Um, now, as we mentioned, you've got the Big Give campaign. You're closing in on a million-dollar goal that you set. How can folks contribute, uh, the folks who haven't contributed and who might bring you closer to that goal? Sure. Thank you. Um, so we uh, invite everybody who's listening um, to donate. Uh, and so you can Donate at uh, sequoiaparksconservancy.org. You can mail us a check. Um, and, you know, we take PayPal. Of course, you know, every all of your donations are secure. and We don't rent or sell any of your information here. Um, and then, of course, we like to, you know, I, I do actually sign all of the thank you letters. I like to see all of the donations. I I. It just means a lot to me, Kurt. I know my staff even think it's ridiculous and, you know, isn't there a more efficient way to do it? And no, there's not, Kurt. Every person who donates is a person who took the time and the intention and loves these trees. And the least I can do is to 
you know, say a mental thank you to each of the donations and sign each of those letters. And some people are, you know, repeat, you know, donors. And I, it's, you know, I, I thank them nonetheless every single time, but it's an important activity. Um, it, our donors aren't cookie cutter people. Um, they're people who really care a whole awful lot. And so I want to spend even a moment with them. That's Savannah Boyano, the executive director of the Sequoia Parks Conservancy. Savannah, thanks so much for joining us today and, and best of luck with your campaign. Um, as we all know, the Park Service is underfunded and every little bit that comes from outside groups such as uh, Conservancy is a big help. Fred, thank you so much for your interest in the story of the KMP Complex wildfire and our effort to uh, help the National Park Service here in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. That's our show this week. We hope you found it interesting. Again, you can help the Sequoia Parks Conservancy reach its $1 million goal for aiding the National Park Service with fire recovery and restoration efforts in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks with a donation. You can find out how to make that donation by visiting the Conservancy's website, sequoiaparksconservancy.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.